I don't like looking like a, um, a hairy, gruff person, um, but it's easier. So I just do it. And, you know, it's, it was born out of laziness. This podcast is brought to you by Microsoft Teams, where there's a team, there's a way. Hey, everybody, what's up? Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History Season 3. You know, it's really hard to be a media darling as an offensive lineman, especially in New York City. Yet this week's guest managed to pull that off. I'm talking about, of course, Nick Mangold, the center for the Jets. Maybe it was that flowing blonde Thor-like hair, or his sardonic wit, or the fact that he had a sister who was probably a better athlete than he was as an Olympic-level powerlifter. Or maybe it was his bromance with his quarterback, Ryan Fitzpatrick. But you put all those things together, and Nick Mangold had one hell of an interesting career with the New York Jets. We talk about all of it this week. The back-to-back AFC Championship games, his bromance with Ryan Fitzpatrick, and of course, the butt fumble. Here now, enjoy all the glory and glamour, if he actually had any glamour, of Nick Mangold. And delighted to be joined now on this episode of Half Forgotten History by seven-time Pro Bowl center for the New York Jets, none other than Nick Mangold. Nick, first of all, thanks for being with us. And your last name is actually perfect, right? Because you're man gold. Yeah, I'm, I'm a man of gold. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Before we get into the draft and, and everything else, it's not easy for a center to become a cult figure, especially in a city like, like New York. So you have to take somewhat of a special amount of pride in that you were very recognizable as a center in New York City. Yeah, um, I, I'm very fortunate that, uh, you know, Kevin Mawai came before me and kind of uh, allowed the Jets fans to, to really appreciate the center position. Um, and then I came in, and I think just off of my caveman-esque looks, um, <laughs> which is really out of sorts for New York City, um, really kind of helped push uh, a little bit of notoriety along. Let's just start right there. Like, they always say you never want to replace the guy. You want to replace the guy who replaced the guy. So the guy who replaced the guy is like, oh, he sucked. Thank God we got this other guy. You didn't have that opportunity. 29th overall pick when you were drafted in the first round. And the Jets just said, oh, by the way, go replace the guy that's going to be a Hall of Famer. Yeah, there was, um, it, it was a very interesting situation because when I was first drafted, uh, we had at the time a center, Trey Teague, uh, from Buffalo, who was penciled in as the starter. So I kind of assumed that I was uh, sitting back for a year and kind of learned the ropes. And then uh, in OTAs, he broke his ankle. Um, and at that point, they were like, all right, well, you're starting now, so good luck. Um, <laughs> and from there, it was just kind of, uh, hey, don't mess this thing up. Well, uh, good news you didn't. Uh, and uh, you were unbelievable your rookie year. We'll get into more of your professional time in a minute, but uh, when you were at Ohio State, you also were compared to Charles Bentley, another all-time great center for the Buckeyes. When in your college career did you start to think, hey, I I might be able to play at the next level, and I might be able to go in the first round? Well, it's funny you bring up uh, Charles because he was – when I was a senior in high school, I paid a visit uh, after I'd committed – um, paid a visit and was walking around. And, uh, we were in the weight room and the Charles had some ungodly number on the bench press, lays down, reps it out, you know, four or five times, racks it back up, and stands up. And I'm looking at him as a senior in high school. And I was like, yeah, I don't think this football thing is going to work out. Um, that, that guy, that guy killed me. Um, and so, you know, going through college, I think the first two years, um, it was just kind of a, a, a joy to be there. And, you know, the NFL seems so far off. 
Um, and then it was a little bit, it was after uh, the draft my junior year when I saw some guys getting drafted that I had played with and played against. Um, and I saw them get drafted. And I was like, all right, well, you know, maybe I'll sneak in sixth, seventh round uh, and get a chance. Um, so that's kind of when it started to hit me a little bit. And you really picked up a lot of steam at this 2006 Senior Bowl, right? That was when I remember, and a lot of scouts obviously thought you had an eye-popping performance. What was it about that experience that led you to believe, maybe I'll go in the second round or third round or fourth round? Because that was like that was described by so many as a tremendous performance by you, Senior Bowl week. It was kind of the, the introduction to the life in the NFL. Uh, we had Tennessee Titans coaching staff there, and the offensive line coach at the time was Mike Munchak. Um, and I remember coming into the another first Hall meeting. Another Hall of Famer. Another Hall of Famer, just tossing mm-hmm. around names. Um, I, and I remember uh, coming in the first meeting, he said, listen, uh, and we're all sitting there, and this group offensive lineman, and, and he goes, uh, listen, it, you know, what you did to get yourself here, I'm not going to change right now. Uh, I'm just going to try to put you in a position to show – uh, what you can do. Um, and I thought that was pretty cool. I thought that was a, a neat way to go about it. Um, and it was, it was an awesome experience. I don't, I don't think it, that um, week really hit me um, until after the combine uh, of what I was able to do for my draft stock um, being at the senior bowl. Okay. So obviously the draft has continued to grow year in and year out in 2006, when you were drafted, that was the Reggie Bush, Mario Williams draft. Like who's going to go first? And everyone thought it was going to be Reggie and Mario went first to the Texans. You know, Jay Cutler was in that draft. Vince Young was in that draft. So where were you during the draft? And, and where were you? Were, were you, you weren't in New York, right? No, I was back in Ohio. Um, I was at home. Uh, I actually missed the beginning of the draft. Um, I was on the golf course um, and I thought it started at one. Um, and I think it started at noon. So, um, I, we were, I got a call from my mom, um, and we were on like the 16th hole. She's like, Hey, by the way, the draft started. I was like, I'll be fine. Don't worry. We're going to finish the round. Um, <laughs> so I, I ended up missing. It's funny, you know, going back to since the jets drafted four, um, and, and picked Rickershaw Ferguson actually missed his pick, um, and had no idea that we were drafted together, um, until a couple of days later. So clearly you weren't that stressed about it because A, you played golf the day of the draft and B, you're like, no, I'm good. I'm finishing the round. Yeah, I wasn't expecting it to go very high. So I, I figured I had time until the second round came, came rushing through. So what did you shoot? Now I have to know. Um, it wasn't a very good round. Uh, it was definitely somewhere in the low hundreds. Um, and that's kind of where it's been for a while. And I don't like talking about it. <laughs> what was, what, what, okay. Here's the question. More putts or beers consumed that day? <laughs> uh, it was, it was definitely more putts. I, I was, I hadn't started drinking yet. Um, just because, you know, it was in the morning. Um, and I don't think I had gotten to that point in my life where I could, uh, comfortably drink in front of my family. Uh, at 10 a.m. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, it sounds like when you say I hadn't gotten there yet, which means you're there now. So that's that's the best and most important thing. Of course. I mean, any brunch or any breakfast uh, without a screwdriver is kind of pointless. <laughs> As friends of mine say, you can't drink all day if you don't start before noon. Um, exactly. So, so finally, you get the call back into the first round, 29th overall. Were you surprised when the Jets called and you were taken off the board in the first round? Uh, definitely surprised. It was um, such a whirlwind of emotions. You know, you get the call and, and you're talking to so many different people. I remember talking to um, uh, Mike Tannenbaum and then Eric Mangini, and then, uh, then they throw you on the line with the equipment guy. 
Um, and it was like, all right, what number do you want? And so it was just, it was such a whirlwind um, because I, I hadn't really expected to go in the first round. I, I knew um, after the senior bowl, after the combine uh, that it was a possibility, but, but I, you know, still didn't know. And especially since leading up to the draft, uh, I did not take one visit. Uh, I, my roommate, AJ Hawk, um, yeah. he, he ended up, I think, visiting every team. He's flying crisscrossing the country. I'm just sitting back at our house at, at Ohio State. Um, and I finally had to call my agent. I was like, I'm, you know, why, why am I not visiting anybody? Am I, is this telling me that I'm not getting drafted? Like, no, you know, you, you did everything at senior bowl and combine, you know, teams know, know you, so you don't really need to. And I was like, all right, well, hope you're right on this one. Um, so it was, it was definitely a surprise. I, I hadn't really done any research mainly because I didn't want to, and want to get my hopes up of, of where I could end up. Um, so I didn't have any, any clue of who might take me. Um, but I'm glad the Jets did. It kind of worked out pretty well. It feels like that's something an agent would say just to cover his ass one way or the other, right? It's like, oh, no, you're good. Or, oh, geez, I, I, I did the best I could to spin that situation. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I, it's probably one of those weird calls because, um, you know, I just – I had the, the good fortune, um, misfortune to be living with a guy that was going to go in the top five. Um, so seeing him go all over the place, uh, I think really skewed, uh, my reality. Yeah. Okay. So both Mangini and Tannenbaum are friends of mine. So feel free to give me any crap you have on them so I can fire back to them the next time I talk to them. What, what was it like working with and for both of those guys? Yeah. You know, it was, uh, it was a great introduction to what life in the NFL was like, um, you know, coming from college. You know, you have this uh, where everyone's kind of always watching over, you know, making sure you're going to class. You know, you're always busy. You have class, you have winter workouts, uh, you have no break. And so um, coming into the NFL with, with Eric, um, where it's, it's so much more businesslike, um, you know, and, and it, you know, it really took it serious that, hey, this is your job. And you're not going to, you know, you're going to be accountable to yourself and to your teammates. Um, and, but we're not going to hold your hand, you know, you're going to do it on your own. So it, it really taught me how to kind of be a pro, which was, I think a big help and helped me get along, get along. Um, I take great pride in the fact that I, I was never late, um, to anything in my 11 years. So that, I think that was instilled early, uh, from Mangini. And, um, you know, it, it's one of those things that like, it, it takes no talent to be on time. Um, so I was pretty, pretty happy with that because I, I don't think I had that much talent. Well, so that means you could have played for either team in New York because obviously that was a huge thing with Tom Coughlin, right? And so you, you were good. You were good no matter which New York team drafted you because of the on-time thing. Is a, it was a huge deal with Coughlin all those years. Huge deal. And now, uh, now in my civilian life, as I like to call it, um, I, I, dragging four kids around, I seem to be late everywhere. Um, and so that doesn't – that uh, really kind of gives me the little heebie-jeebies every time we show up late. I'm like, ah, someone's going to yell at me or I'm going to get a fine letter in the mail at some point. Well, well, but see, you had the built-in excuse, right? Because you have four reasons why you could not be there on time because, you know, a family dynamic is simply the chaos theory as uh, as uh, Jeff Goldblum was trying to explain in Jurassic Park. Yeah, uh, we, uh, we live in a constant state of chaos, which makes it our normal. Um, so then I can't really call it chaos, but yes, I blame them. Uh, for just about everything that goes goes wrong in my life, I blame them um, and be like, "Listen, it wasn't my fault. It was the kids." Yeah, and they'll, they'll deal with that because they'll get the they'll reap the rewards on the back end, for lack of a better term, if you know what I mean. Of course, they blame me for all kinds of stuff, so it's already started. So you were there with Mangini, which means you were there for the entire Spygate scenario. 
uh, when that went down. Like we all know how it played out, but as someone that was in the locker room and sort of had to deal with that as it was unfolding, what was that like? I got to tell you, um, I actually was pretty oblivious to it. Uh, Being a young guy in the NFL, um, especially under Eric, you know, Brick and I used to joke all the time and uh, Pete Kendall used to give us crap for it all the time that, you know, we were worried that our rookie year, we were going to get cut and Pete would look at us and, you know, he's a 10 year vet um, and he's old and ornery. Um, and he goes, they're not going to cut their two first round picks. Like <laughs> you guys got to quit worrying about it. And we're like, no, I think they're going to do it. It's a real possibility. Um, so I was so focused on, on football and everything. I kind of missed, you know, the, what was going on with Spygate. I mean, I know I saw it in the papers and saw, you know, the discussions about it, but the actual going on and, and you know, talking to different people about it uh, really just kind of went right over my head. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that because I think that's a philosophy, a survival technique that offensive linemen had. Like we, we did an episode recently with Lane Johnson and I asked him, Hey, when you heard the call Philly special in the Super Bowl, what went through your head? And the first thing he said was my job's easy on this play. Exactly. You know, when any, especially when you hear the call, I mean, you never really think about uh, what may or may not happen. You're like, oh, you know, this this job is going to be a little bit harder. This job is going to be a little bit easier. This one's kind of down the middle of the road. Uh, that's definitely kind of the offensive lineman mentality. Uh, How's it affect me? Yeah, well, it's true because, like, unless you get praise in the film room or from your teammates, the only praise or the only time your name is called during a game, if there's a penalty, like, or, or you give up a sack, that's the only thing it is. It is honestly being an offensive lineman, the most thankless job in football. It really is. And, and when I was playing, I always wondered, you know, I was like, you know, why doesn't the offensive line get more respect, you know, from the fans? Uh, there's five of us trying to do one job, um, you know, it, which is a very difficult job. Why, why don't we get more? Um, and it dawned on me after being out of football and now watching it, uh, as a casual fan, um, and it really makes me mad because for some reason the camera follows the ball, um, and I, I don't get that. So you don't, you never really get to see the offensive line, uh, what they're doing, unless it's something bad. And so the replay plays, and like, oh well, look, this is how why they gave up a sack. Look right here, you know, this idiot, you know, messed up. So uh, I now kind of understand it better, um, and I, I probably would have had a better appreciation for it if I'd um, been a little bit more of a fan while I was playing. Yeah. Teddy Ruski always said, if you take your eyes off the ball, you might learn something. And we certainly saw in Super Bowl 55, the value of an offensive line, because I mean, I don't know how much you watch Super Bowls. You know, some players say they'll never watch them. They've been playing them. So I don't know what your superstitions or, or feelings on it are, but that was the difference in the game. The defensive line dominated the offensive line of the chiefs. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, my, uh, it, it's funny. I, I know plenty of guys like they won't touch a Super Bowl ring while they're playing. Um, they won't watch it unless they're playing in it. Uh, those type of things. But uh, I actually had the good fortune. My son, my oldest was born on Super Bowl Sunday. Um, oh, wow. And so uh, I got to watch uh, the first day he's in the world. I got to watch uh, Green Bay play Pittsburgh. Um, and so every, ever since then, um, I make it, you know, my job that I'm home. Uh, we watch the Super Bowl together, uh, which we've done now for 10 years. That's awesome. Super Bowl 45, by the way, the final score, 31-25, uh, the Packers over the Steelers. And interesting note in that game, there have only been two 31-25 scores in the history of the NFL, both losses by the Pittsburgh Steelers. So there you go. Huh, look at that. And, uh, you know, they shouldn't have been in the game anyways because we lost the game in Pittsburgh uh, two weeks before that. 
That is absolutely correct. And uh, we, we won't we won't delve on that in any way, shape or form. But why don't we take a Why don't we take a break right now? When we come back, we'll talk about the transition from Eric Mangini to the Rex Ryan era and what that was like with that offensive line, because you guys had some dogs on that offensive line when Rex got there. Uh, stay with us. Lots more coming on Half Forgotten History with Nick Mangold after this. Microsoft Teams is helping priority bicycles reinvent the way they work. When the pandemic hit, the bike shop had to close their New York City showroom. Now they found a way to reopen by doing virtual visits on Teams. And now the team can meet with two or three times the number of customers they could before, and people from all over the world can visit their showroom. Learn more about their story and others at Microsoft.com Teams. All right, back with you on Half Forgotten History. Nick Mangold joins us. Clearly, the transition from Rex to uh, from Eric Mangini to Rex Ryan was a little bit different. Eric, as you said, very businesslike, very buttoned up. Rex, in every way, not so much. So the first time you sort of introduced or were introduced to Rex, what was your initial reaction about how different he was going to be as a head coach uh, than Eric was? Yeah, um, I guess the night and day comparison uh, would be definitely appropriate here. Uh, Rex coming in, you know, he came in at his press conference, you know, we're not kissing Bill's rings. Um, and right from the get go, then I was like, this guy is going to be just something. He's going to be a wild child. Um, and then I met him and he was, he was awesome because he has such a great, um, football mind, but he has a kid like mentality about the game. Um, and he, he would say all the time, he's like, listen, we get paid a king's ransom to play a kid's game. Um, and if we take ourselves too seriously at that, uh, we're doing ourselves a disservice. So uh, he opened it up to have a little bit more fun. Um, and, you know, I think it worked for us too, because we had some fantastic veterans on that team uh, that could kind of take that message, um, enjoy the game a little bit, but also kind of keep, uh, keep a lot of discipline uh, amongst the team, you know, you guys, you have guys like Alan Panic uh, coming from Pittsburgh. Um, he, he did a fantastic job. I think not only for me uh, personally, but also for, I, I think our offense line and our team to kind of give, Hey, listen, uh, I've done this in Pittsburgh. Here's how we're going to do it. And, and here's how we're going to go about things. By the way, another hall of famer, an excellent name drop was Alan just got in this year. Yeah. yeah. He finally got in. About so, time. Let's let's talk about that offensive line for a minute because you mentioned DeBrickashaw, you mentioned Fanica, one of my favorite players that I've ever worked with post career, Damian Woody, also on that team. Y'all had some dogs, man, on that team. And and the thing that I remember about the Jets is in an era where we were trying to wing it out, you guys were ground and pound, and you wanted to do it your way and do it a different way. How much did the offensive line specifically embody that philosophy and that mentality, which clearly came down from Rex Ryan? Yeah, I mean, Rex said it from day one, uh, and I'd be remiss if I don't don't forget to say that, uh, you know, we also had Brandon Moore at right guard for well, us. Well, I was going to um, bring him up a little later for a different reason, but go on. Yeah, no, we're not talking about the incident. Nope. So I'm going to bring him <laughs> in in a good light. Um, and say the five of us, uh, you know, we had a, a fantastic thing going. Um, and, you know, Rex saying ground and pound from the beginning was something that, you know, we, we took to our hearts. You know, we had Thomas Jones, um, a fantastic running back for us. And, you know, we were just, we would pound away. Um, and it's something we always joke, or at least in, in my mind, 
the run game is very much like uh, chopping down a tree. You're never going to yeah. be able to take an ax in one swing, knock it down. Uh, same goes for a run game. You know, you're not going to call the first run play and it's going to be 80 yards. And that's just going to be how it goes for the whole game. You kind of have to wear defense down. And we took great pride in that feeling, knowing that, you know, what we may have gotten two or three yards in the first quarter in the fourth quarter, we're getting 12, 14, 16 yards. Uh, that we were able to do that. We were able to beat down a defense so much that we were able just to, to grind it out and get the win. Yeah, Mark Schlereth, also uh, one of my best friends ever, has the greatest line about that. He's like, I hate it when announcers say, well, the short passing game is really just an extension of the running game. It's not the same. It's not the same. What you're talking about doesn't have the same mental attrition on the opposition than the short passing game does, right? You'd much rather as an offensive lineman much do it the other way because then you know you're controlling that other guy. Exactly. And I, I think that, uh, you know, he had nail on the head right there. Like it, when you're going backwards, you're kind of, you're taking their best shot. When you're going forwards, you're imposing your will. So, I, you know, I think passing and, and running are two completely different things. If it's, even if it's two yards to 40 yards, they're two completely different mindsets. All right. By the way, for those that weren't following along when we talked about Brendan Moore, the words were butt fumble. So I, Nick does not want to go down that road. You don't want to talk about it? Is that what I'm hearing? I mean, I'll talk about it, but I'm referring to it as the incident. Okay, um, I will so, not name it. Okay, it shall not be named. You'll talk about it as the incident. <laughs> I'll refer to it by its proper name, the butt fumble. And I have to say, I'm glad you brought up Brandon in defense because he did his job on that play, on that fateful Thanksgiving night uh, against the Patriots. And Mark just fell into his ass, man. There's no other way to describe it. Yeah, that, um, and I still don't know the full story because uh, Mark had opened. Uh, what did he open to the left, but the running back went to the right. It was so a busted play. Just, it was a busted play. It was a completely busted play. I don't know whose fault it was. Um, and I think that's the worst thing for Brandon um, specifically is that he was doing his job against Vince, uh, Vince Wilfork, who is not yes. an easy person to, to push around. Um, and we always said that a stalemate against Vince was an actual was actually a victory. Um, and it was just a bad look because then I think Mark then tried to go for the slide and everything. And I remember we were sitting in the cafeteria Friday morning after that game. Uh, you know, you're dealing with the loss, the, the whole incident, um, losing to the Patriots, you know, just at Thanksgiving, the whole kick caboodle. Um, and, and Brandon's sitting there and, the, you know, TV's on and it's one of the highlights. And he goes, that's it. That's what I'm going to be forever known for. I was like, nah, you, it's going to Something else will happen in two weeks and everyone will forget. He goes, yeah, have you seen highlights from the 70s? It's like, yeah, of course. You know, anyone's seen, you know, highlights from years ago. He goes, that one's always going to play and it's always going to be me. And I was like, nah, it's not. <laughs> Yet here we are, um, however many years later, still ten. talking about it. So, ten, it's almost 10 so years now, later. Is it 10 years? Ah, and now I, I, so now I feel bad and I, I should yeah. owe him an apology. I should have taken a little bit more serious. No, you were trying to, you were trying to deflate the situation. You were trying to take the tension away. That's what a friend would do. Now I think you probably full knew well that, yeah, that's going to go down forever, but you were trying to be a good teammate right there. Don't, I, don't it, feel bad. No, that's the bad part. I really thought it would go away. I did not think it would live on to be the top, the not top 10 um, I think they had to retire it because it yes. never got beat for what was it? it was like 56 straight weeks. It was like, you know what? We're it, just going to have to retire because it was no incredible. one's going to do worse. <laughs> and, and I, and I will say this I, again, 
he gets more gets so unrightfully blamed for that because a stalemate against big Vince, as you said, that's a win. He held him up. He Vince wasn't pushing him back. Mark just ran into his butt cheeks, man. There's no other way. There's no other way to describe it. And what was so weird, you guys were actually in that game before that play. And that started a cacophony of just disastrous events that led to a 30 point blowout. Yeah, that was, that was the end. Um, and it, you know, it was just, it was disappointing too. Cause, um, we, it, you know, you, you work so hard and then to have one play um, be a, a lasting memory for and be a terrible play to be a lasting memory uh, just stinks. Well, listen, we, we are here to set the record straight again. It what And I know Mark. Mark's a friend of mine. I love you. Sanchez, that one was on you. It wasn't on Brandon Moore. We can all agree, right? We can all agree. Oh, that's definitely Mark's fault. I just don't know if uh, I think it was Sean Green was the running back. I don't know if he yeah. went the wrong way or not. Um, but Mark's definitely at fault. How much grief did he get in the locker room afterwards? Or did he need consoling too? Um, see, I think that's the thing. We all kind of had this belief that it wasn't going to be a thing. Um, and then by the time it did become a thing, at, at that point, you just kind of have to laugh at it because, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Like it's there, you know, own it. It's right? there. Yeah. I think, I think everyone took the loss a lot, a lot harder uh, than that one play. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you guys had a, a decent amount of success against the Patriots, including going up there and knocking them off that one weekend in the, in the postseason up in Foxborough. But again, no one's going to remember that. They're going to remember that play. Exactly. Um, I remember knocking them off in Foxborough because that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, that one, that gets stuck. And it just, it, it stinks that, you know, Jets fans have to deal with that too because they didn't have anything to do with it. But now anytime you talk about the Jets, like, oh, yeah, remember that one play? Remember? Yeah, remember? And, and so they get drugged back into it. Well, listen, if I know anything about Jet fans, and I know many of them, they're accustomed to misery, right? That, that, that comes outside of two straight years with you guys in the AFC title game and Super Bowl three. that's it, man. That's all they got. Yeah, I know. And, and um, it, it's been difficult, too, because, you know, uh, for some reason, my son's a big Jets fan. Oh, don't um, do it to him. Don't do it I, to him. No, he's, he's already in. Um, and so um, I, I'm just I'm fingers crossed that, you know, sometime for his birthday, I'll be able to take him to a Jets Super Bowl. Um, you know, just please. Like, that's all we need. Well, well, let's just get the quarterback situation straightened out. By the way, I I will say this in defense of Sam Darnold. Like, if the Jets had done with Sam Darnold what the Bills have done with Josh Allen, I think we'd be talking about a very different player right now. I mean, they believed in what they what their talent evaluation was of Josh, uh, and they surrounded him with a slot receiver in Cole Beasley, a tight end in Dawson Knox, uh, two uh, over-the-top threats in John Brown, who's now gone, but then Stephon Diggs. And lo and behold, he becomes an MVP candidate. Like, if you're a Jets fan or a former Jets player and they just give up on Darnold and bring in another quarterback without addressing all the other stuff, what does it matter? Exactly. And that's kind of where uh, I'm sitting, too. You know, I think Sam uh, really has been kind of put behind the eight ball. Um, some of his own doing, some of the Jets doing. Um, you know, you have in his second year, he comes out with mono. Um, what, what quarterback comes down with mono, um, you know, in the NFL. And so having to deal with that and building back up. And then I was really, it was a positive sign after that, you know, midway through his second year, they ended up winning a bunch of games towards the end of the year. Uh, didn't help anything because they lost a bunch in the beginning, but you know, the, I, that was a good sign. And then you have the coronavirus come in. 
um, and throw everything for a, out of whack. Um, he doesn't have any of the weapons that he needs. I, I just I don't know as a talent evaluator how you can evaluate a guy um, after having a season of mono and then a season without really any real weapons around him. Um, you know, the offensive line keeps rotating around. He's got no consistency. So um, I, I don't envy JD on this one um, of trying to figure out this decision of what to do uh, with Sam Darnold. All right, that's enough of the football crap. Uh, let's take another break. And when we come back, <laughs> we'll talk about the most important things. Uh, your bromance with Ryan Fitzpatrick, uh, the greatest uh, uh, release photo of all time. Uh, let's see what else. Cooking, barbecue sauce, and of course, Spa Day. That's next with Nick Spa Mayfield. Day. <laughs> Microsoft Teams is helping Priority Bicycles reinvent the way they work. When the pandemic hit, the bike shop had to close their New York City showroom. Now they found a way to reopen by doing virtual visits on Teams. And now the team can meet with two or three times the number of customers they could before, and people from all over the world can visit their showroom. Learn more about their story and others at Microsoft.com Teams. Back once again with Nick Mangold here on Half Forgotten History. And of course, Nick, you've been known for a beard your entire career. So was it the facial hair that Ryan Fitzpatrick started to grow during his playing career and then when he came to the Jets? Is that what bonded you guys right away? Because it seems like your bromance is real and spectacular. Yes. Um, I, I got to say, it probably started with just the physical appearance of a beard um, and then followed up that I realized that we're the same age. Um, so we bonded over, I think, the beard, uh, Fraggle Rock, and a love of Star Wars. Um, really, really just kind of brought us together. Okay, now, now... See, I told, I said I had intel. Now you're giving me intel. Give me the Fraggle Rock and Star Wars background because now I'm really interested. Well, the Fraggle Rock, it was just, I, I made some reference to Fraggle Rock. And, it, you know, as you get older in the NFL and, you know, there's always new crops of guys coming in um, and they keep getting younger for some reason, you know, some of my references would be lost. And so I made some wisecrack about Fraggle Rock and I think he laughed. I was like, oh, yeah, you uh, you get that. And so I was like, oh, this is great. And then that flowed into Star Wars because I think there was a new Star Wars movie coming out right around um, that winter. And so we started doing um, we started making up calls at the line uh, that uh, went with Star Wars. So we would do like uh, I think we had light and saber for two different calls. <laughs> um, I know we used uh, Luke um, and Vader. Um, and you know, we just kind of, we played around with it. And I remember a couple guys looking at us like, you two are the biggest nerds I've ever seen. Cause <laughs> like as the quarterback, you know, he, he has the power to say, no, I want to do it this way. Or I want to do it that way. Yeah. And me as the, the center of quarterback of the offensive line, I get the opportunity to tell my guys what to do. And so as long as we were on the same page, the coaches didn't care what we yeah. said, you know, yeah. we could have just said, we could have been talking gibberish. So we had some fun with it. And I know, I know Brick used to give me just the, the most amazing crook eye. Like, come on, guys. Like, yeah. are we really doing this? Because you know, we'd spend meetings trying to figure out how can, we, how can we incorporate Star Wars into this. Well, it's funny because now it seems like every team does that on some level. Like you hear the Halle Berry audibles and all this kind of stuff. So really what we're learning here is you and Fitzmagic were just ahead of your time. Yeah, I, I think we were, um, although, you know, I think we give football players a little bit too much credit on code words and everything, because everything, uh, for the most part, has a L and has an R. 
Um, and that's pretty much just the left and right. And that's how simple it can well, be. You, well, you're, you're, you're giving away the secrets. Like a magician doesn't tell how he does the tricks. Come on, Nick, you can't do that. No, it's my secret recipe, especially this past year, since we didn't have fans in the stands, you could hear a lot of the calls. Um, and so I would, uh, just blow my kid's mind, uh, hearing some of the calls cause they, they change and it's kind of, you know, here and there, but a lot of them are still similar. Um, and I would, you know, predict if it was a pass or a run. Um, and my kids' minds would just be blown. I think one of the things that blew a lot of the minds of a lot of fans was the photos of you and Fitz and I think Eric Decker taking the New Jersey Transit in the Rangers sweater to the Rangers playoff game, and then you guys just absolutely having a ball at that playoff game. It was against the Penguins, right? Yep, Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, Sidney Crosby took the brunt of it. Um, we had gone to a, uh, a Rangers game back in January, um, and we just had a grand old time. It was, uh, the offensive line rookie dinner night, um, where we may have had one or two adult beverages no. before going to the game. No. And so we got after it and it, I found out it was right after the season too. So I kind of let the aggression of, you know, 16 games and, and, you know, hearing different fans yelling stuff and everything and realized that we were right up against the glass and I knew they could hear me. So I had fun with it. Um, so we went back to the playoff game, which is the, I think the more famous one. My wife, of course, says, you know, make sure you behave yourself. I said, of course, honey, I, I'm, you know, I got you covered. Whatever you need to and, say. Um, whatever you need to say. And I saw um, before the game, I saw Mr. Dole in there. He said, hey, you know, I want to make sure you give those guys grief today. Like, well, if the owner says I can do it. You know, I'm, I'm getting after it. Um, and so I got a, a text from my wife, uh, I think after the second period. And she said, you know, I hope you're, you're having fun and behaving yourself. And then about 30 seconds later, cause then I, I, I got this and I don't think you are. And there was a, a story from the post um, about how the security uh, almost kicked me out of the Rangers game. And I was like, that's a lie. They didn't kick me out. They were laughing. They just told me I couldn't touch the glass, uh, which apparently is a no, no in playoff hockey. Yeah. Listen, that's the barriers there for a reason, unless you're in Philadelphia, then anything goes. Um, long, long story short there, there was a, there was a guy in the penalty box and one of the flyer fans literally tried to climb over the glass and get into the penalty box to, to, to fight the guy. So that's a, it's a legendary uh, flyers uh, fan story. Um, it doesn't sound like a good idea. No, I think it would be terrible, but like you have to be very socially lubricated to even suggest I've got an idea. <laughs> let's try this. Um, so <laughs> yes. now let's, let's get down to the nuts and bolts of it. Like spa day. Here's what I was told, Right. Every Friday before a game, you would walk around the facility in a robe. If it was a home game, it would be a green robe, right? If it's a away yep. game, it would be a white robe. And you would get a full day, like masseuse, Manny, Petty, the whole deal. Nick Mangold is into the finer things. Of course. Uh, yeah, spa day became um, one of my most favorite days of the week. Uh, and it kind of was born out of uh, a callback to Alan Fanica. And when he got to us, you know, he used to take care of his body. He was doing stretching, cold tubs, hot tubs. He, he did a lot to, to keep himself going. And I remember looking at him as uh, two, I think it was my second year. It was like, why are you doing all this? He goes, you play long enough, you'll see. Yeah. I was like, all right, whatever, old, old man. Um, <laughs> and then as, as I was going along, I was like, oh, I, I do need to do this. So I, I embraced it fully. Um, and I had a schedule to keep, you know, from the beginning of when I walked into the building uh, before meetings um then through practice and then after practice because fridays you know you get done or a little bit earlier on fridays when guys tend to you know just they shower and they're out and so i i 
I would kind of have the place to myself a little bit. Um, you know, I would go in, I'd do some tubs, I'd get uh, a massage, um, and then I'd, I'd do a little bit more tubs, maybe a sauna. Um, I would, you know, at that point, you know, you cut your nails. I didn't wear gloves. Um, so a, a split nail, uh, could get caught on Jersey and rip, which has happened and hurt, you know, a lot. So I, I would make sure <laughs> I cut my nails. Um, and you know, when we moved, um, from Hofstra to, uh, New Jersey, they had put in, you know, our new locker room, they put in this great sound system and everything, but no one really figured out kind of how to use it. It was always just a, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Right. Uh, so one day I finally took upon myself. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to get in there, um, figured out how to get an aux cord onto it. And so every Friday, along with all the, the fun physical activities, we'd also have Dave Matthews band playing, um, pretty much as loud as it would go, uh, in the locker room because no one was there to sell, tell me no. And it was, uh, spa days were, were something special. It, it's kind of like that episode of friends where Rachel has the apartment to herself and suddenly she just decided to be naked the entire time. Pretty much. Um, you know, I, I would cover up for the most part because you never know, like Fridays were also a time when people might bring like family by and whatnot. Um, <laughs> my bad. So sorry. I thought I had the place to myself. They'd see me strutting around in my robe. Um, and I don't remember where I got the, the robes were sent to me by some company. I don't even know if it's still around. I, I don't remember the name of it. Uh, but they sent a green one and a white one. And so that became, uh, I even had slippers, um, yeah. had some nice little shower shoe slippers. So it was, it was a big, uh, it was a big to do a big deal for me. So it, it, is it fair to say that Nick Mangold is in many ways a walking contradiction because you, you give off this unfrozen caveman, uh, lawyer vibe with the hair and, and the goatee and the beard, but you appreciate the finer things in life. Of course. I, I think, um, the duality of it is what makes me, me, um, you know, I, I like, uh, I, I don't like looking like a, um, a hairy gruff person, um, but it's easier. So I just do it. And, you know, it's, it was born out of laziness. Um, but I also, I, I do enjoy the finer things. I like a nice glass of red wine. Um, and I like spa day. Uh, and and apparently you also like a Bentley with a baby seat in the back. I do. Um, that was a fun purchase. Uh, oh, probably eight years ago. Uh, we were looking. I was looking to get something, and my wife laughed at me because I think at the time I was looking at a two seater. She's like, you know, we have a child. He needs to sit somewhere. <laughs> um, so you need to find something that uh, we could put a car seat in. So I said, okay. Um, and so we found the Bentley, we could put the, uh, the car seat in the back. So that's what we went with, um, which was a stupid decision because then we had, um, three more kids. And so we all can't ride in it anyways. Um, so it gets used by my wife and, uh, I, I get it. I take it out every once in a while, but there's no car seats in it anymore. It would have been a great flex for her if she'd said in the Titanic voice, we have a child we have a child <laughs> yeah it was um it, but it, it was still I, it, it sits uh it, it, that i have my, my bentley and then i have my uh 1970 chevelle um those are my two my two little babies 1970 um, chevelle so. nicely done yeah yeah thank you it just had uh just had its 40th birthday last year um which was uh, pleasant um and it, it, it's a fun car um i've had it for 11 years now, uh, and it's a blast. Always wanted one. Uh, so I was able to uh, find one back in Ohio. And uh, so now it's here in Jersey, knowing all the neighbors because it's, uh, it's straight piped. 
Uh, so I'd say it, you, they're they're probably asking for it to be triple muffled at this point. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's 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 do this real quickly. The toughest guy you ever had to face to, on the line. Who was the toughest guy? Because everyone's different, right? Sometimes it's not the guys you would think of, but who was the guy that gave you the most trouble when you had to line up against him? The glaring one. It's always everyone's like, oh, who's the the toughest one? And I, I always try to find some obscure guy. Um, but there's but I always come up with two. Uh, one, Vince Wilfer. I mean, yeah. you know, we talked about him earlier. He, we had, I think over my career, we went against each other 23 times. Um, and every time was a, an amazing battle. Um, and then the other one I, I always fall back on is uh, Kyle Williams. Played for Buffalo for a long while. Um, Big dude. Hell of a man, golfer, by the way. Hell of a golfer. Yeah, he's got a smooth swing, uh, which I don't know where that came from. But yeah. he, going up against him, you know, when he was playing that three-tech, um, he is, he's just a bowling ball of muscle and explosion. Like he would time the snap count, like no one's business. And you knew going against Kyle, you knew you were in for a fight for 60 minutes. Schlereth once told me that, you know, the guy that who was great, but he always could do okay with was a hall of famer and Warren Sapp just for whatever reason, he was able to match up with him. Well, is there a guy that has a reputation and that you've played against? You thought, yeah, it wasn't that bad. Um, Ooh, that's a good question. Well, I, I got Warren Sapp at the end of his career. So I would say that I'd beat up Warren Sapp too. Um, it was pretty easy. Warren uh, Sapp, by the way, clearly not a fan of this podcast. If anybody's wondering, because <laughs> taking shots at all in favor of Warren Sapp. Taking shots. Yeah. No, it was, uh, he was, I was, he was in Oakland. Uh, it was yeah. this was my rookie year. Um, you know, the one that got me was, uh, Albert Hainsworth. Yeah. Um, and it, it, that we played him. Um, it was my rookie year. It was, it was my welcome to the NFL. I remember going against him and I was like, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a tough battle and he probably beat me more times than not, but he didn't kill me. Right. So I was like, all right, so it can't be that bad. Um, Albert had other issues he was, later. He did. He did. Um, contract Albert was really difficult to play against, but then once he got his contract, it was, it was easy sailing again. Two different dudes completely. Two, yeah. Two completely, completely. different dudes. Okay. So the other we, we mentioned the 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 sweater and the Rangers game picture. The other picture, which was just perfectly timed. Uh you're on a log flume ride at Disney World. They snap your photo, and that's the day you realized you had been released by the Jets. And it's still one of the greatest posts of all time in athletes' history. How soon did you realize, yeah, this would this would go over well? Um, I, I didn't, I didn't think it would catch on as much as it did. Uh, I, I had gotten, you know, I had gotten the call while we were in Disney and, um, you know, it was just, it was one of those things where, you know, we, we've been fortunate that we've taken our kids a decent amount of time and you kind of get to know where the cameras are on the different yeah. rides and everything. And especially that one, knowing it was a full shot. Uh, I was like, I, I should be able to do something with this and, you know, so I took that, the sad photo there and, it, and I didn't really know what to do with it. And then it, it just kind of hit me. It was like, oh, I, I saw another meme somewhere. I was like, that would work pretty well for this one. Um, and so I threw it on there. So the happiest place on earth for me um, kind of turned into the worst place, or at least uh, when I did get the actual phone call came when I was in Mexico in uh, Epcot. Yeah. And so we, I don't think we've been back there since. Let's <laughs> not say cross that one off the list, right? That one's, that one's dead to me. All right. As a mangled to the core, 
what are you more proud of? Your playing career and getting to two AFC uh, championship games or watching your sister Holly play high school football and make it to the U.S. Uh, make it to the U.S. Olympic team as a weightlifter? Yeah, I, I think um, Holly making the U.S. Olympic team and then competing for the U.S. Uh, is something really special. You know, I was able to uh, get over there and see her when she competed in London. Um, and, you know, for as much as we enjoy the NFL and, and how big it is here in, in the U.S., um, you know, it, it's still not a world competition. Yeah. Um, and so to watch her compete on a world stage uh, was something pretty special. As I always say, the United States still undefeated in Super Bowls, 55-0. and 0. We are killing it. Oh, wait, we only play Killing ourselves. It. We only play ourselves. Yeah. Listen, can't be stopped. We're still 55 and 0. I was about to say, but to be honest, anybody else wants to play, I still like our chances. Just that, that's just Yeah, I'll take our way, chances. That's the way that's going to go. So I, I know you're a huge uh, barbecue guy. Uh, Damien said, make sure you ask him uh, about his barbecue game. It's on point. Now, you have your own barbecue sauce as well out there, right? Yeah, so that was uh, when I was done playing. Uh, after a while uh, of being uh, Mr. Mom, you know, I, I, I thought of, all right, what else, uh, what else can I do? Um, and we were joking. I was like, well, I was an entertainer basically for 11 years. I never created thing, anything other than my four kids. Um, I want to make something. Uh, and so I had been making a barbecue sauce for the past five or six years because uh, my own ego said that I could make something better than I could buy on the shelves. Um, and my partner was like, yeah, let, let's, let's make a sauce and sell it. And it was like, you've already made one. So now we just got to sell it. And so uh, it's been a fun process. We started back in the spring of, of 2019, um, coming up with the, the idea just to, to do it and then learning all about the sauce business. I, I had no idea, you know, you go through the grocery store and you see everything on the shelf there. And, and um, I had no idea what went into each one of those individual bottles. Uh, not only the, the product, but also the label, the bottle design, the logo design, there's a lot that goes into it. And so, uh, our first line of production came off in March, I think it was March 23rd, 2020. Um, so right at the beginning of a pandemic, uh, which was perfect, brilliant timing on our part. <laughs> I was about to say, um, it worked out okay. Worked out okay. I, I actually... We, we, like, we like to joke that it was now our cold opening. Uh, we're actually starting this year. Uh, but it's been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot. It's been neat to share something that I love uh, with other people. Um, and it's been, I just, I wish we could do more. Um, we had all these grand plans. We had a huge meeting in, in New York City. Um, it was like March 3rd, I think. We had these grand plans, all these tailgates we're going to do, all these little uh, you know, all the stadium stuff we we're going to do for the upcoming football season. Um, and then two weeks later, everything was put on pause. So uh, hopefully soon, once things get back to normal, uh, I can be the sauce man going around uh, and slinging it to, to anyone who wants to try it. All right. Speaking of sauce, you just turned 37. We just saw Kyle Long come out of retirement. He's going to play for the Chiefs. Do you ever think, yeah, for the right, for, for the right amount of sauce, I could do this for one or two more years. No, um, I've found that I wake up in the morning feeling pretty good. And I like that, um, you know, and, and I think at the, the same time, I'm pretty proud that uh, I only played for one team. I was able to do it for 11 years for one team. Um, and so I think coming back to play uh, is definitely never going to happen. Um, what I would always, what I've always dreamed of, and, and they've yet to make the position, but I want to be a, uh, a, a coaching consultant where I get to have 
have the fun of the coaching with none of the responsibilities no, um, perfect. and still get paid. Yeah. Uh, they've yet to come up with that position for some reason. I don't know why, well, um, but maybe, maybe one day, maybe be just a get back coach. They got to make sure everybody's back on the sidelines, you know, then you get a little scratch no, that, and you get involved. That's always uh, that's always a strength coach. And I, I don't, I don't need to be around a weight room and a bunch of, <laughs> bunch of muscle heads. Yeah. Those days are gone, right? Those days are gone. Yeah. To, to maybe paraphrase from Eli Manning, once a jet, always a jet, only a jet. Only a jet. Yes, I'm. I'm out. Well, listen. Uh, this has been a blast for me. I always enjoyed watching you play, and I've seen some of the stuff you've done in your postseason career. That's been a lot of fun. The man who looks like he's been pre- preparing for a COVID lockdown his entire life, ladies and gentlemen, the great Nick Mangle. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So once again, thanks to Nick for joining us this week, and especially thanks for letting him relive the butt fumble memories. I'm sure he loves talking about that. But when we come back next week, a very special guest who says his insane workouts are simply motivation to avoid being fat. I think he's going to be fine just there. You saw him play for a lot of years, a former NFL Defensive Player of the Year, and a guy that still terrifies most people he runs into. Longtime NFL linebacker James Harrison is next week's guest on Half Forgotten History. We'll see you then. <laughs>